Nothing but the blood of Jesus can wash away our sins. That is what we celebrate tonight. That is what we remember tonight. That is why we can pray tonight. I'll ask you to take a seat as we take a moment to pray to the one who gave his life for us. Jesus, tonight we sing that your blood speaks a better word than anything we hear on this earth. A good word. And yet tonight as we remember, we sit in the pain and the grief and the confusion of Good Friday. It's hard not to feel conflicted about calling this day, the day that you were crucified, good. The fact that there even had to be a day when you, the eternally glorious, righteous, loving Son of God, would be made sin for us is, is, is not good in any sense of that word. And yet what is good, what is overwhelmingly good, is that that is exactly what you did. Freely and gladly you gave yourself for us on the cross. And it is for that that we praise you tonight. Tonight, as we remember the better word that your blood speaks over us, we remember the words that, that you spoke from your cross. When your heart cried out words of forgiveness, saying, Father, forgive them. And cries of intense suffering, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Tonight, we remember that your cry of forgiveness was only possible because of your cry of forsakenness. You were forsaken so that we could be forgiven. And this reality tonight humbles our hearts. It silences our words. It, it fuels our worship. Because tonight we also remember the best words you spoke on the cross. It is finished. There is nothing left to do for our salvation. Once and for all, perfectly and fully, all of us who believe have been reconciled to God because of what you did. You have made us righteous. You have brought us back into a relationship with you. Your word tells us that you became sin for us, that in you we might become the righteousness of God. This is the great exchange of your gospel. The just for the unjust. The beautiful one for the broken ones. The lamb of God for rebels from God. And for that tonight we are eternally grateful. This gospel is so great that for all eternity, we know that we will continue to be filled with awe and wonder and unending gratitude for what you have done for us, how you have given yourself for us, how you, you love us. And so tonight we bow our heads in awe and raise our hands in praise to you, our Savior. Thank you, we pray, in your glorious and grace-filled name, Jesus. Amen and amen. The curtain is hanging, shredded right down the middle, rippling with the echo of the final cry of the Son of God. A commander is standing in the shadow of an execution unlike any other he's ever been a part of. And there's a group of women, followers of Jesus, that are watching, waiting, weeping, for whatever is supposed to come next as their Lord breathes his last breath. 
the light is going out of the world as the sun dips below the horizon and, and it's getting more and more difficult to shake the cries that hang in the air around the cross outside the city gates. Cries that ring in the ears of a crowd trying to go back to normal. The cries of a man that is anything but normal. Shock waves that reverberate through creation in a crucifixion like no other. The taste of the words the crowd had screamed earlier stuck in their mouths with the metallic taste of copper. Crucify him. As everyone tries to go back to normal in a world that will never be the same, there's one man who on that night experiences physically what the gospel accomplishes spiritually. One man who is not supposed to be free. A man you might not have noticed in the story, someone who is, is not supposed to be breathing, walking, talking, free, as the sun goes down on a day that he wasn't supposed to live to see the end of. A terrorist, an insurrectionist, a rebel who tried to incite riots against the rulers of the empire oppressing his people, Barabbas. A man who is alive and shouldn't be who is alive because someone else is dead, who is free because someone else was condemned, a man whose experience on Friday illustrates why we can call Friday good. Tonight, I want us to roll back the events of Good Friday and show you what you might have missed as we were reading through the story in our service. And I actually want to use the account of Luke because it slows down in this scene and it paints a picture of the good news that can change lives. If you have your Bibles, I want you to turn to Luke chapter 23, verses 13 through 25, and I want you to step with me into the courtyard where an unexpected exchange points to the great exchange of the gospel. We follow a crowd summoned by a governor of Rome into a courtyard in the city of Jerusalem, and the text tells us this. Pilate called together the chief priest, the rulers, and the people you see, this is not the beginning, but the end of a trial that has gone wrong at every single turn. We are no longer in opening statements. Everyone has had their say, and the crowd is being summoned for what they believe to be the final verdict. But as Pilate continues to speak, their expectations start to crumble and slowly build into rage, listening to the very last thing that they expect from this representative of their brutal overlords. You brought me this man as one who was inciting the people to rebellion. I've examined him in your presence and have found no basis for your charges against him. Neither has Herod, for he sent him back to us. As you can see, he has done nothing to deserve death. Therefore, I will punish him and then release him. Their rage expands to fill the courtyard as the accused stands silently besides Pilate draped in a, a purple robe of mockery, courtesy of the traitorous leader, Herod, that he was just sent to. Jesus doesn't say a word as Pilate's offer hangs in the air. You see, up until this point, he has experienced cruelty at the hands of both religious and public leaders. And like one of his disciples will write later, when they hurled their insults at him, he did not retaliate. When he suffered, he made no threats. Instead, he entrusted himself to him who judges justly. So here our Jesus stands, the picture of a, a quiet strength, enduring the wrath of the crowd. 
entrusting himself to the just judge rather than this judge who's standing next to him trying to stand before the onslaught of anger that's building before him. But while Jesus remains quiet, Pilate is anything but trying to politically maneuver around the wrath of this crowd. Except the politicking is not working. The fury of the crowd eventually erupts, overwhelming his counteroffer of torture. As the text says, the whole crowd shouts, away with this man. Release Barabbas to us. The roar of the crowd echoes beyond the courtyard to a holding cell where a man sits condemned of the same crime that this crowd is trying to pin on Jesus. Insurrection. Chained. Waiting. Blood on his hands after the uprising that he staged. Waiting. The narrator interrupts the text to explain that Barabbas had been thrown into prison for an insurrection in the city and for murder. And the roar of the crowd fills his cage with what he knows comes next. Torture and whips and nails and suffocation on a Roman cross. Barabbas hears the crowd call his name and and then the chanting begins. Wanting to release Jesus, Pilate appealed to them again. You see, Pilate is trying a second political maneuver to release an innocent man condemned by religious and political envy. But the bloodthirsty demands of the crowd get louder and louder and louder. They kept shouting, crucify him, crucify him. And Barabbas' heart beats faster and faster as the chanting gets louder and louder, screaming what he imagines is his sentence. But Pilate's voice breaks through the chanting a third time. Why? What crime has this man committed? I have found in him no grounds for the death penalty. Therefore, I will have him punished and then release him. As we watch the mosh pit forming before Pilate, we are amazed at the irony that's playing out before us. Jesus is innocent, and even a corrupt leader like Pilate sees it. But his own people do not. His own people are so caught up in their sin, they're they're so disgusted with Jesus' claims that they believe that he deserves death. But he does not. His death is unjustified. He has done nothing to deserve the verdict that they demand. Unlike Barabbas, the rebel murderer that's sitting in a jail cell, he deserves the punishment that's reserved for the worst offense. Not Jesus. He has done nothing to deserve this to deserve crucifixion, one of the harshest punishments that the Roman Empire had in its arsenal. Barabbas earned his death. Jesus has not. And still the words crucify him, hang in the air, held up by a mob of image bearers hell-bent on killing the one whose image they bear. The volume becomes unbearable as their rage grows bold enough to make demands of, of a Roman overlord. With loud shouts, they insistently demanded that he be crucified, and their shouts prevailed. So Pilate decided to grant their demand. Pilate, the politician, stops politicking on behalf of Jesus and now begins to politic on his own behalf, giving in to the mob to avoid more violence. They insist, they demand, and he caves. They prevail. They get their way. And isn't that what sin really is at the end of the day? Humanity getting its own way. 
ignorant of the repercussions, or even worse, hell-bent on having it our way. This is the sin that started all this back in Genesis 3, when our ancestors did not trust God enough to follow his ways, but decided that they wanted a piece of what he had, and that they would get it any means necessary. In a garden, listening to chaos, they introduced chaos into the world. And in a courtyard, a spineless politician listens to the chaos of a crowd. An angry crowd that listens to the chaos of its leaders. Twisted by anger and jealousy, the crowd wants what it wants. It demands blood and it will get what it wants. And there's Jesus, standing before them, condemned to death, condemned to die the death of another man, condemned to die our death, not unwilling, but willingly giving his life for us. You see, apart from Jesus, we have no hope, and he knows that, even if we don't believe it. And he takes it upon himself to give us hope by giving up his life for us. The demand for crucifixion crowds out the sounds of the city and an exchange takes place. Pilate releases the man who had been thrown into prison for insurrection and murder, the one they asked for, and surrendered Jesus to their will. The life of a murderer a rebel is traded for the life of the sinless one, the one in whom no fault could be found. An innocent one is substituted for a guilty one. And at first glance, it looks like the only will at play is the will of the crowd. But there is more than meets the eye in this moment. You see, in this moment, the will of the crowd is actually mixing with the will of Satan that's trying to destroy the Son of God. And yet all this time, the will of God flows underneath this evil current of chaos, working all things together for good. This moment and the devastation that follows would be a tragedy if it were not for God's will being done. This moment and the destruction of the Son of God would be a horrible miscarriage of justice if this was not the plan from the very beginning. The man who had been thrown into prison for insurrection and murder, the one they asked for, was released and Jesus was surrendered to their will. A murderer goes free and the author of life is executed. And yet this was all part of the plan. You see, just a few pages before our text, in Luke 9, 22, Jesus explains that the Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders, the chief priests, the teachers of the law, and he must be killed and on the third day be raised to life. Nine chapters later in Luke 18, 31 through 33, he actually takes the 12 aside and he tells them point blank, listen, we are going up to Jerusalem and everything that is written by the prophets about the Son of Man will be fulfilled. He will be delivered over to the Gentiles. They will mock him, insult him, spit on him, flog him, kill him. And on the third day, he will rise again. This was always plan A. And after everything went down, one of those 12 who heard all of these plans and then experienced the plan for himself, Peter explains in Acts chapter 3, you handed him over to be killed. 
You disowned him before Pilate, though he had decided to let him go. You disowned the holy and righteous one, and you asked that a murderer be released to you. You killed the author of life, but God raised him from the dead. We are witnesses of this. He writes, this is how God fulfilled what he had foretold through all the prophets, saying that his Messiah would suffer. And then he says, repent then. Turn to God so that your sins may be wiped out. This was always the plan. And this is the great exchange of the gospel. This exchange illustrated by Barabbas on the first Good Friday. The rebel was freed, the innocent condemned, all so that we could be alive again. Jesus didn't just come to show us how to be nice. Jesus did not just come as a great moral teacher or an example for us. He didn't even just come to heal people's bodies and make the socially outcast feel like they have a home. No, he came to die. Why? Because he came to save. Jesus himself said he did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. The exchange that happens in Pilate's courtyard is an object lesson of the gospel. The gospel in action Jesus condemned to die the death that someone else deserved, that Barabbas deserved, that you and I deserve. Romans 3.23 tells us that all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. The beginning of Romans 6.23 explains that the wages of sin is death. We are all guilty of sin, condemned to die, awaiting final judgment we are, we are separated from God, and the demand for capital punishment is just. It is what we should expect for our crimes, much like Barabbas sitting awaiting his ex execution. What we shouldn't expect, what the gospel says we receive instead, is the rest of Romans 6, 23. Right? Because the, sin, the wages of sin is death, but the gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. Jesus was crucified in our place, in my place, in your place. He died in our place. And tonight we remember not only that he died, but that he was buried in our place. He was actually dead. He didn't faint. He didn't just get tired. He actually died. And on Sunday we celebrate that he didn't stay dead. We celebrate that he didn't stay buried. We celebrate that, that he was raised from the dead. The grave could not hold him. He came back to life so that we might be made alive. His sacrifice, standing in Barabbas' place, became our salvation, standing in our place, taking on our punishment, saving us from the death that we were condemned to die for our sins. This is the gospel, the good news of Jesus. Jesus condemned in our place, we were condemned to die as rebels to the king of the universe. Our lives were set against him in every way possible. It was an act of treason against the king of all creation. But instead, instead of us hearing a death sentence pronounced over us, we are freed and forgiven because he was forsaken. The Bible explains it like this. God made him who had no sin to be sin for us, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. This is the great exchange. 
the gospel, the good news of Jesus. Our sins separated us from him and they condemned us to death. And God put our sin on him completely, entirely, every single sin, past, present, and future. He took it all for us. Why? So that we might become the righteousness of God. So that in him we might be who God made us to be. No longer dead in sin, now alive in Jesus. No longer enemies and rebels, but friends, children of God. Invited to his table, not as guests, but as family. Do you believe this gospel? Do you believe this good news that Jesus took your place on that cross, that he died the death you deserved, and that because of this fact, your sin is paid for, wiped clean? The scriptures tell us that by faith, we can be saved. Anyone, not by anything we do, but by faith alone in Christ alone. It is a gift to be received. Death was a paycheck we earned from our sin, but salvation, mercy, forgiveness is a gift we receive by grace. Believe that Jesus is who he says he is, that he did what he said he would do, that his death counts for your sin and that there's nothing left to pay on your account. The scriptures say that when we believe in that moment, the spirit of God adopts us into God's family and makes us his children. Before we were enemies and now we are family. There's one last takeaway I want us to take from this text tonight. Did you know that the name Barabbas has a really specific meaning? Bar meaning son and Abba meaning father. Do you know what that means? It means the son of the father was freed by the true son of the father so that he could make us sons and daughters of the Father. This is the gospel. The gospel we believe, the gospel we proclaim. At this table, this is the gospel we remember. That Jesus was forsaken by God and died on a cross that we would be accepted by God and receive eternal life. And so tonight, as we come to a close, I want us to take communion together to invite you to the table in remembrance of the gospel, proclaiming that gospel. And so as we prepare to take, if you didn't grab one, there's a bunch in the back. But I also want to encourage all of us to open them together and get all the crinkling out of the way. But then pause and don't eat because we're going to eat it and drink it together. All right? So open both sides really quick. Some of you are realizing how tricky it actually is. It sure is, buddy. All right, we ready? It's all right. We got time. Tonight we gather around this table as family. As followers of Jesus made into the family of Jesus with open arms for anyone who wants to be the family of Jesus by faith. What makes us family is Jesus. What brings us to the family table is Jesus. And so as we prepare to take and eat and raise and drink together, I encourage you to reflect on what it cost Jesus to save you. 
to make us into family. And if you're here tonight and you have not confessed and believed in Jesus as your Lord and Savior, I plead with you tonight to confess and believe and then take and eat and raise and drink with us. Believe that he is who he says he is and that he did what he said he would do, that he died in your place for your sins and came back to life for you that you could be clean and back in relationship with God so that life could be right again. If you have not believed, I urge you to believe before you participate with us. But then the moment you believe, you're in. There's nothing left to do to be part of this family. If you have believed, I do urge you to take and eat and raise and drink to remember and proclaim the gospel together with us, remembering and rejoicing in the forgiveness of our Savior. Before we participate, let's pray. Gracious God, tonight we remember your cross. We remember what it took to save us. You were innocent and we were not. We deserve to die, but instead you died. Your body was broken for us, by us, because of us. And tonight we remember, tonight we declare that our hope is in Christ alone. We confess the sins that so easily entangle us, the sins that promise us life but give us only death and despair. We confess that we are so easily caught up in what you died to kill in us. We confess and we repent. And as we eat and drink, we pray that you by your spirit would remind us and empower us to live in the grace you died for us to have. We pray, entrusting ourselves to you, Jesus. Amen and amen. I want us to hold up the bread together, familia. Paul writes in 1 Corinthians 11, verses 23 to 24, I received from the Lord what I also delivered to you, that the Lord Jesus on the night when he was betrayed took bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke it, and he said, this is my body which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. Let's take and eat together. Father, like we sang tonight, we trust in nothing but the blood of Jesus to save us. Jesus, your blood speaks a better word over us, a word of forgiveness and salvation rather than condemnation. And while the crowd screamed for your crucifixion, you cried for theirs and our forgiveness. Your blood is more precious to us than silver or gold, and we are grateful that your blood has wiped every sin off our record and made us into family. We pray grateful to you, Jesus. Amen. Let's raise the cup together. Paul continues in 11 verse 25. In the same way also he, being Jesus, took the cup after supper, saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. Let's drink and remember together. Paul ends this passage saying, For as often as you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. Familia, at this table, we remember and proclaim as we eat and drink that anyone can follow Jesus by faith. Anyone who confesses their sins and receives his forgiveness. That apart from Christ, we were lost. Like Titus reminds us, hated and hating one another. But in Christ we have been found and his love makes us family. May this table continue to point you to the greater meal we're going to have in heaven together. Until we get there, let's pray that we would proclaim the gospel with our whole lives together as a family. Would you pray with me?
Father, tonight as we praise you, as we remember what others would call defeat, but in your kingdom you call victory, we remember your cross with joy, and yes, we call it good. Like Pastor Bill said this past Sunday, what we remember together tonight was not a setback that you had to come back from on Sunday morning. No, tonight we remember the victorious king exalted on a cross, the exact opposite of what the world would consider victory and power and success. You conquered not through conquest, but through service to the point of death on a cross. You conquered our sin, but even more than that, you conquered the evil that had this world in its grips. Good Friday was the beginning of the end, Lord. And we rejoice in what you have done, the beginning of the end of all evil. But even in our joy tonight, we remember the confusion of the first Good Friday. As we anticipate our final reading tonight, the the burial of Jesus, we remember that between Good Friday and Resurrection Sunday is Holy Saturday. Quiet. The final cry of it is finished, still lingering in the air. Not because you were finished but because you had made an end to all of our sin. We remember tonight that you make room for our sadness and our frustration and our worry, not because you are worried, but because you know how to hold our fears and our anxieties and still point us to hope. You are the God of hope. And tonight we remember what it took to give us hope. May you fill us with joy and peace as we sit in the devastation of Good Friday. Endure the silence of Holy Saturday and are electrified by the anticipation of Resurrection Sunday. Pray all these things in your name. Amen and amen.